This episode of Relic brought to you by the esteemed patronage of Landshark, Louisa, Lucy, and Rain. Thanks for helping to keep the adventure alive. New York City, August 2017. St. Mark's Place, the last bastion of New York City's punk movement. In a city of ever-shifting identities, St. Mark's is a macrocosm of Manhattan, taking on a different vibe with the changing of decades and always retaining a rebellious spirit. Over the years, it has played host to speakeasies, the Beat Poets, Punk Rock, Keith Haring, Klaus Nomi, Africa Bombada, the Notorious Club 57, I could go on, Today, it is sometimes affectionately known as Little Tokyo for its wide range of ramen and Japanese restaurants, including the Yakuza-themed snack bar Kenka, named for Japanese delinquents and featuring such delicacies as wasabi roulette and bull penis. Naturally, it sits just below a vintage punk shop, Search and Destroy. The day I first visited St. Mark's was the same day I decided to move to New York, which, come what may, was still a good idea. And this street remains my favorite place in the whole city. In August of 2017, fresh off the launch of Relic, I decided to embark on some field research and journey to St. Mark's to visit its Museum of the American Gangster. I felt like I just walked into someone's pre-war apartment, and indeed the place had once served as the home of White House chef Walter Scheib. I waited outside a wooden door and wondered if I'd gotten the address wrong, until a lovely woman in a red dress and impeccable lipstick greeted me, unlocked the door, and led me into a wide room. What was once someone's living room was now a gallery of artifacts from one of America's most violent and tumultuous periods, Prohibition. I ended up being the only guest on tour that day as my guide, Mary, walked me through a menagerie of the criminal and macabre, old moonshine bottles and home brewing kits, and bullets from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. It was also a literal rogues gallery, featuring mugshots and photos of mafia gang stars such as Lucky Luciano and a portrait of Harlem's queen of crime, Stephanie St. Clair. Truly, I was among legends. And this is nothing to say of my own Italian family's semi-involvement in New York mafia dealings, or rather a case of mistaken identity. Being in the carding business, the Jersey side of the family came under scrutiny as working for the mob, but their innocence was later validated. Or maybe they just had a good alibi. Speaking of alibis, I was not there at the Museum of the American Gangster without a motive of my own, as there was a very specific reason I had come by that day. Towards the end of the tour, Mary directed me towards a long transcript that had been enlarged and tacked onto the wall. It was the deathbed confession of one of New York City's most infamous criminals, Dutch Schultz. His last words, committed to the page, were either incoherent ramblings of a guilty, dying man, or something more suggestive. A key to finding a secret cache containing over $130 million of mob money.
the 1920s. Turn-of-the-century America was marked by a growing number of political and religious movements, and these spheres of society often intertwined. Citing the effects of rampant alcoholism on the growing American middle class, movements such as the Salvation Army, coupled with the puritanical wings of women's suffrage, teamed up to make America a dry country. Now this was hard goings, mostly because one, Americans love them some booze, and two, the brewing industry in the States was way too strong to fail. However, World War I had turned the public against German migrants and descendants, many of whom owned the breweries, and so a resistance against the rising temperance movement was depleted. In 1917, the Senate introduced the 18th Amendment, thus far the only amendment to ever be repealed in its entirety which banned the production and distribution of alcohol. In 1920, the 18th was ratified, effectively making alcohol illegal. Now, any of us with a brain and a functioning liver know that banning something just makes it a lot cooler, and nobody knew this better than the American Mafia. In the late 1800s, members of Sicilian organized crime imported their outfits to New York City and began to take a foothold, but they didn't have a large economic factor until Prohibition. Speakeasies, smuggling, production, and rum running quickly became their cash cow, and soon the mob had taken over major American cities such as Chicago, Boston, and, of course, New York. The mafia's success was largely due to their diplomacy and structure. The mob knew how to funnel money into politics to keep the law's eyes turned the other direction, provided they didn't get too murdery about it, which they still often did. The Mafia was also highly diplomatic, and outside of extorting business owners for rackets, they generally tried to keep the public uninvolved with their dealings. Not necessarily for a sense of righteousness, but harming civilians was simply bad for business. At the time, New York City was run by an alliance of five families known as the Commission, who liaised with the other networks throughout the country and divided New York's boroughs among their territories. It was into this powder keg of Tommy guns and amazing suits that one Arthur Simon Flegenheimer was born. And with a name like that, it's no wonder he grew up to become a murderer. Arthur's father abandoned the family at a young age, setting Arthur down a troubled path. But for a good part of his youth, he was involved in honest business, mostly trucking for various industries. This included the Schultz Trucking Corporation based in the Bronx. By 1920, Arthur had gone into nightlife work, which is exactly where the booze was flowing. He worked in a nightclub owned by a lower-ranking mafioso, but quickly found himself afoul of the law when he started stealing from the illicit gambling games that were so prevalent around these venues. Arthur then escalated in his criminal pursuits and started doing petty break-ins, but he was caught trying to rob an apartment and sent to a prison on what we would recognize today as Roosevelt Island, a place with its own unique history. At two miles long and only 800 feet wide, Roosevelt sits in the East River between Manhattan and Queens, and it was primarily used for incarceration and hospitalization before it became a residential area. In Flegenheimer's time, when it was known as Blackwell's Island, this stretch of land called home to a notorious mental hospital, the Octagon. Its creepy spiral staircase interior served as the basis for the set design in American Horror Story Asylum. Today, it's an apartment building, and most definitely not haunted. Anyways, this is the kind of place where Flegenheimer was dumped, and he did not take it very well. The exact opposite of a model prisoner, Arthur Flegenheimer was so unruly that he was sent away to a prison farm on Long Island. 
When he was released, he returned to Schultz Trucking Company to discover that the once reputable business was now smuggling spirits into New York City from Canada. Arthur was in on the deal, but finding that his efforts weren't being appreciated, decided to cozy up to the company's competitors, the Italian Mafia. From that day on, Arthur Flegenheimer fully delved into the New York City criminal underworld, abandoning his name and taking on the more catchy moniker of Dutch Schultz. In addition to running booze, Schultz returned to his old haunts in the Bronx and became a bouncer for a speakeasy called the Hub Social Club, run by a mobster named, and I kid you not, Joey Noe. Noe took a shine to Schultz's penchant for violence and decided he would make the perfect partner for a number of smuggling operations for speakeasies throughout the Bronx. Since every speakeasy north of 220th Street was terrified of Schultz, most of them didn't object to buying from his supply, except for one wise guy named Joe Rock, who resisted Schultz and Noe's bootlegging operation. To teach him a lesson, Schultz and Noe kidnapped Rock, took him to a warehouse, and hung him by his thumb from a meat hook. Whereupon, Schultz wrapped a gauze soaked with gonorrhea bacteria, and I don't even want to know where he got that from, around Joe Rock's eyes. He then ransomed Joe Rock to his family to the tune of $35,000. Rock went blind from the ensuing infection. So no, Dutch Schultz is not the hero to root for in this story. Up until this point in time, the Mafia mostly controlled Manhattan and Brooklyn. The Bronx was a loose collection of private smugglers that the Mafia didn't bother with, possibly because the demographics were just different or they didn't see much value in trying to move their operations northward. Manhattan North was also under the control of the Irish, under the purview of the mobster Jack Legs Diamond. Guys, the names in the story are fantastic. When Schultz and Noe began expanding their operations southward and into Manhattan, Legs took notice, and he wasn't the type to share his toys. So on October 16, 1928, as Noe was leaving a midtown speakeasy, he was gunned down by a driver in a blue Cadillac. Noe was able to return fire, and in fact, when police discovered the car less than an hour after the shooting, they found the driver slumped over his steering wheel and riddled with holes. However, though Noe managed to kill his killer, he died of infection not long after, setting Delt Schultz on a bloody path of vengeance. Schultz's reign of terror began with the assassination of Arnold Rothstein, an ally of Diamond's who oversaw the Jewish mob. Diamond was next on the list, and on October 12, 1930, two gunmen shot Diamond outside his suite in the Hotel Monticello. Jack Legs Diamond survived, in part, he said, to taking two shots of whiskey after being gunned. Fearing he just cashed out on his luck, Diamond fled to France, Belgium, and Germany for a time while the storm blew over. Schultz was said to have remarked on Diamond's near invincibility, ain't there nobody that can shoot this guy so he don't bounce back? Well, in December of 1931, Schultz got his answer. Jack Legs Diamond saw returning to New York City as potentially hazard to his life, but thought the capital of Albany would do just fine. However, he miscalculated and was fatally shot dead not long after an attempt at setting up operations there. 
After quashing a rebellion from within his own syndicate, Schultz fancied himself on top of the criminal enterprise, mostly free of control from the Italian Mafia Commission. But even he couldn't have foreseen an entirely new enemy in his midst, the rising tide of popular opinion. After almost a decade, Prohibition was seen as a huge failure, engendering more trouble than it was worth. In 1933, the U.S. Congress struck the 18th Amendment from the Constitution. It meant liquor was now perfectly legal to sell and consume again, but it also meant that Dutch Schultz was out of a job. And so the mobster turned his eyes northward towards Harlem, which was in the middle of a cultural revolution, a renaissance led by black artists and entrepreneurs. Harlem was also the epicenter of what was known as the numbers racket, an illegal lottery in which gamblers picked an arrangement of three numbers to be drawn the next evening. Savvy types knew how to rig the game, and this proved to be a big business deal for Schultz, if he could gain a foothold. There was just one woman standing in his way, Stephanie St. Clair, the Queen of Harlem. Up until the turn of the 20th century, Harlem was often considered the countryside in New York City. Middle-income families had made it their home, with some stately houses in between, but it wasn't the most populous neighborhood in the borough. However, that soon changed. The late 1800s was a very strange time to be a Black American, but then again it's America, when isn't? Reconstruction offered freedoms in a post-slavery world that still did not go far enough. And though black congressmen fought to make America a better place for African Americans, white supremacists such as the Ku Klux Klan and opposing Congress members made this fight an uphill battle. When Reconstruction ceased before it could bring about real change, and the induction of Jim Crow laws made the South a miserable place to, well, not be white, a great migration drove middle-class and lower-middle-class black families northward to slightly more tolerable states. New York City, which had been considered an epicenter of multiculturalism since colonization, appeared the most reasonable place, and by the 1910s, Harlem was settled as a predominantly African-American neighborhood. Still, racism from neighboring white neighborhoods proved dangerous for thriving black communities across the U.S. Such was the case when Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, considered by many to be the Black Wall Street, was burned to the ground in an act of violent hatred. Harlem was not immune to this, but nevertheless, it prevailed. The jazz boom created a lively nightlife culture patroned by curious, open-minded, and ostensibly allied white New Yorkers. Black literature absolutely thrived, thanks to the efforts of Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, and Spencer, and a host of other greats. Entrepreneurs such as Madame C.J. Walker, the cosmetics baroness, also helped develop Harlem's economy. And it was into this cultural revolution that Stephanie St. Clair came into power. A bit of a disclaimer, I don't like to sugarcoat or shy away from the unpleasant truths of history, but there's a bit of Stephanie St. Clair's early life that I will respectfully leave out from this episode for both explicit content readings and content that may upset some survivors of abusive trauma. So if you want to know more about her past, which I do encourage, just keep all that in mind and feel free to Google away. Hailing from the West Indies, St. Clair fled a terrible life as an abused maid and tried to find gainful employment in France. 
Unable to break through racial barriers, St. Clair immigrated to New York and moved to Harlem. After surviving a series of traumatic and terrifying incidents, which included St. Clair putting a fork through the eye of her pimp, she began her own business selling legal drugs with her partner, Ed. She found an opportunity in working the lottery, but Ed wanted to control her assets, and legend has it, during an altercation, Stephanie St. Clair pushed him away in self-defense and caused him to crack his head on a table, killing him. From that point on, St. Clair rose to the top of the Harlem Lottery, or policy gambling as it was called. With her money, she was able to hire a team of henchmen, bribe cops from leaving her businesses alone, and run the numbers for profit. Unlike her mafia cohorts to the south, St. Clair was not entirely motivated by personal gain, and used her money to improve the lives of the neighborhood. Well, some of it was for personal gain, but she did actively try and help people where she could. St. Clair was also a civil rights champion, educating the community on voting rights, legal protections, and running ads in the paper accusing certain police officers of misconduct. When the cops did try and pull her away, she gave names to President Franklin Roosevelt's anti-corruption committee of all the cops who took bribes from her, which resulted in many dismissals. After this, the police left her mostly alone. The Mafia, by and large, operated along racial borders and generally saw little value investing in Harlem, which to them wasn't worth the trouble. However, Dutch Schultz, who was now desperate to find a new line of profit, saw the numbers game as a burgeoning opportunity and began to eke out a territory through his trademark style of violence and intimidation. When St. Clair got wind that her people were being driven out and beaten by this upstart, she ordered a tax on his storefronts and used her network to rat out Schultz's operations within the area. Schultz was dealt an economic blow and was rightfully furious, but St. Clair was smarter and craftier than the mobster. She had her top henchman, Bumpy Johnson, seriously the names, take charge of her businesses and struck a deal with the Italian mob, allowing them a select run of Harlem lotteries, which was enough of a peace offering to keep the mob happy. Through cunning and negotiation, Stephanie St. Clair retained her turf. Schultz's business began to decline, and his repeated forays into racketeering didn't pay off as well as his smuggling days. There was also the fact that he wasn't paying taxes to the government. And if American history circa 1920 to 1930 tells us anything, you can get away with murder, but you can't get away with tax evasion. So befell many gangster greats, such as Al Capone. By the middle of the 1930s, smack dab in the Great Depression, U.S. attorney and future presidential candidate Thomas Dewey decided to reel in the growing crime and corruption within New York City and Dutch Schultz was a particular thorn in his side. While the Italian mob kept things under the table and pulled all the right moves, Schultz fell under Dewey's watchful eye, and the attorney attempted to convict him for a failure to pay tax. Schultz managed to slime out of a guilty verdict. The then-mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, now best remembered as the namesake behind the second-worst airport in the New York metropolitan area, threatened to have the police arrest Schultz on site if he ever returned to Manhattan from his exile in New Jersey. Schultz had no choice but to set up shop in Newark, the namesake behind the third-worst airport in the New York metropolitan area. By now, Schultz's legal fees were racking up, and so he began to siphon some money from his operations. 
Though he ruled over his lottery games and rackets with an iron fist, fear wasn't enough to intimidate his workers, who soon turned against him. Though Schultz refused to admit it, and his henchmen dared not speak the truth aloud, the mobster's power was waning. Then, famed mafioso Lucky Luciano swept in and took control of Schultz's money-making operations, despite Schultz doing everything he could to curry favor with the Italians. Up in Harlem, Stephanie St. Clair, a tenuous ally of Luciano's, was likely popping champagne at this turn of events. But Schultz was pissed. Without Manhattan, a territory he could not safely enter under penalty of arrest, the money was all dried up. Desperate and mad, the only recourse Schultz had was to get rid of the lawmen making his life difficult. Schultz called for an emergency meeting with the Mafia Commission, what would be a fateful decision. His request was simple, have Thomas Dewey assassinated. Though one of the leaders of the commission, Russian-born Jacob Shapiro, initially supported the plan, the majority called the idea insane and immediately shut it down. Kill a U.S. attorney? There would be no quarter. The full extent of the U.S. law would come down upon the mafia and wipe them out of the city. In retaliation, Schultz pointed a finger at arguably the most powerful criminal syndicate in the United States of America and accused them of stealing his rackets and feeding him to the law. He left in a huff, and the bosses of the commission knew that Schultz was bound to do something stupid. Which he did. Lucky Luciano soon got wind that Schultz was in the midst of putting a hit out on Dewey. Inarguably the most Italian thing in this whole story, the members of the commission met in secret in a midtown deli. Over pastrami and rye and Rubens and egg creams, I may be embellishing this a little with the food, the commission decided unanimously to take out Schultz, who threatened the continued existence of the New York Mafia. It was a decision not taken lightly, as Schultz was still a powerful mob leader, despite his recent bad fortune. On October 23, 1935, Schultz attended dinner at the Palace Chop House restaurant in Newark. In his company was his accountant, Abe Landau, and personal bodyguard, Lulu Rosencrantz. While Schultz was in the bathroom, two hitmen entered the establishment and opened fire. Riddled with bullets, Schultz's men pursued the hitmen into the street and shot at their getaway vehicle as it sped off into the Jersey night. Schultz emerged from the bathroom, clutching his side and bleeding. Lulu managed to call for an ambulance before he collapsed from his injuries. By next morning, Schultz's men had died from blood loss and trauma, but the gangster himself remained alive, mortally wounded and delirious. His time would soon come. At Schultz's deathbed were his mother, his wife, the police, and a priest who administered Catholic last rites to Schultz of Orthodox Jewish descent. Schultz had actually converted to Catholicism not long before that fateful night in order to appease the Italian Catholic Lucky Luciano. For Dutch Schultz, even religion was just another means to an end. At his bedside, police stenographer F.J. Lang took down Schultz's last words, which would go on to become the most vital clue in this tale of hidden wealth. Most of the transcript was just jumbled words of a man near death whose brain had begun to fail— a lot of it is incoherent and doesn't make for good podcasting, but you can find the transcript in its entirety in the Relic blog post for this episode. 
Not long after all of this was committed to the page, Arthur Dutch Schultz Flegenheimer succumbed to his injuries and died at the age of 34. As he lay dying, a telegram message arrived at his bedside. A memo from the Queen of Harlem, Stephanie St. Clair. It read, As ye sow, so shall ye reap. Not long after Dutch Salts finally met his maker, all sorts of strange secrets started to come out. For one, it was discovered that not only was Schultz never legally married to his wife, but he may have kept not only a secret wife, but a whole secret family on the side. Two mystery women were said to have turned up at the morgue to receive Schultz's effects, their identities never revealed. There was rampant speculation as to what assets Schultz had retained before he died, and what he would bequeath to his next of kin. There were a lot of people hungry to shake down his money before Schultz's corpse had even cooled. It was estimated that Schultz was worth $131 million at the time of his death, but after his lawyers had combed through all of his assets, the money was, well, gone. Or at least, not where anybody could find it. Shortly before he was bumped off, Dutch Schultz was more afraid of retribution from Thomas Dewey than he was the mob. Schultz knew that he could end up in jail, and guys in jail were clipped to lose both their cash flow and their territories, going into jail rich and coming back to society a whole lot poorer for it. So Schultz ordered his businesses to scrounge up his wealth, hidden across his various operations throughout New York, and stuff all of it into empty tobacco sacks. The accumulated loot was hidden inside an airtight, specially commissioned safe. Historians don't know if this loot consisted of cold hard cash, gold coins, bonds, jewels, or what have you, and all accounts differ. But what is known is that Schultz and his closest companions, several who had died with him that night in the hail of gunfire, took this safe and drove it a few hours north into the Catskill Mountains. At that time, the Catskills were still the getaway destination for New Yorkers, only a few hours outside the city, but culturally and aesthetically worlds away. Today, the Catskills are forested, beautiful, quiet, and just a bit eerie. The perfect place for a lost treasure. It is said that the Schultz gang did not depart from their headquarters in New Jersey, but my home state of Connecticut. While Schultz was known for his brutality and greed in New York, he used Bridgeport, Connecticut as a retreat, and by local accounts, he was the consummate gentleman, quite generous with his money, and more likely to be spotted riding horses in Fairfield than busting heads. Legend has it that, somewhere in the forested Catskills, Schultz's team dug a hole and buried the safe. Then, Lulu Rosencrantz carved a single X into the base of a tree so they'd know where to find the money once the heat in Manhattan died down. Some stories say that Lulu drew up a map leading to the treasure and entrusted it to an associate should anything happen to him. The town of Phoenicia is often cited as the place closest to where Schultz and his henchmen hid the safe. There are reports from Phoenicians seeing tough-looking men in fedoras saunter into town around the time shortly before Schultz and his closest followers were assassinated. Those who believe Phoenicia is the most likely candidate for treasure speculate that Schultz buried the safe near the small waterway of Espis Creek. Treasure hunters and conspiracy theorists think that Schultz's last words were the key to where he'd buried the loot. 
One version of the transcript mentions a delirious Schultz asking Lulu to drive him to Phoenicia, as well as hiding something in the woods. Schultz also speaks of getting Liberty Bonds out of a box and cashing them in. Many hunters have taken this as gospel truth that Schultz hid something in the Catskills, but having been to the Museum of the American Gangster and seeing the official police transcript for myself, there's nothing in it, insofar as I can tell, alluding to a hidden stockpile or safe. There is considerable debate as to when exactly the safe burial took place on Dutch Schultz's timeline. Most authorities date the day of the burial to after his exile in Newark, but some place the event on the same day Schultz was murdered at the Chop House restaurant. According to Google Maps, by car it's about 2 hours and 22 minutes from Bridgeport, Connecticut to Phoenicia, New York, and it's just about the same amount of time from Phoenicia to Newark, New Jersey. Schultz was killed around 10.30 p.m. So this version of events is possible timing-wise, but keep in mind that the major highways were probably a little different in the 1930s, and this is taking into account automobile speeds from 2019. Theoretically, Schultz and his gang could have left Connecticut at dawn, buried the safe in the Catskills, and then had enough time to dine and die by 10.30 that evening. Corroborating this timeline is one eyewitness account from a local, who reported seeing Dutch Schultz and company having lunch at the Phoenicia Hotel around 1pm before hopping onto Route 214. This theory places Schultz near Stony Clove Creek, 8 miles outside of town, where Schultz chose to bury the safe near the landmark called the Devil's Face, a popular rock formation. The report says it took the men two hours to bury the safe before they were spotted again in Phoenicia by 3 p.m. and then back in Newark by evening. Now personally, this still feels like a bit of a tight schedule, and it doesn't help that we have no idea what method Schultz used to dig up the hole for the safe, or how deep it was buried. A gentleman by the name Mickey Simpson, who had been living in Phoenicia around the time Schultz was spotted lurking around town, believed that the safe was buried near the town creek, but has likely since been washed away. Since the 1930s, the creek has flooded several times, with some reports of castaway refrigerators being caught in the swell downstream. Even a safe as heavy as the one described in the stories could have been carried away and if so, is now probably at the bottom of the Ashokan Reservoir, 46 feet deep. Every year, prospective treasure hunters from across the country journey to the area around Phoenicia, New York, to try and find the lost safe. Some think it's buried near train tracks. Others hold to the belief that it's near the Devil's Face, citing one of the many cryptic lines uttered by Schultz on his deathbed alluding to Satan. An apocryphal and not easily verified post from TreasureNet, the treasure hunting website, reports that the treasure has already been dug up. The post, dated to December 2004, reports, I found the original cache site after a three-year part-time search. The large tree now growing out of the hole suggests it was recovered decades ago. This user goes on to say that Jacob Shapiro, who had initially supported putting a hit on Thomas Dewey, likely got a hold of Rosencrantz's map and uncovered the treasure himself. The user goes on to say that nearest to the site is a tree carved with the year 1934, the year Schultz would have buried the safe. Still, there are others who don't think Schultz buried anything at all. And if there was money, it was immediately snatched up and spirited away by his underlings. 
journalist Alan May, a mafia expert, theorizes that Schultz wouldn't have bothered to drive miles outside of New York to bury his safe when there were other hiding spots around the city that would have worked just as well. But an episode of Unsolved Mysteries disputes this, and side note, shameless plug for the podcast Perhaps It's You, which rates and reviews every episode from Unsolved Mysteries, one of the 90s best shows. One of Schultz's closest associates was notorious gambler Nick the Greek. Though perhaps not the most reputable character, Nick said that before his untimely death, Schultz charged him with hiding and guarding a mysterious briefcase. After Schultz had died and was thereby unlikely to come looking for his money, Nick opened the case and discovered $5 million in $1,010 bills. And no, I didn't make that up. Until 1968, they used to produce banknotes that large. But nobody could verify the story. When asked what he did with the money, naturally, Nick the Greek said he gambled it all away. On April 21st, 1986, controversial TV host Geraldo Rivera hosted a special broadcast called The Mystery of Al Capone's Vaults. The live broadcast was to showcase the opening of Al Capone's forgotten vault in the basement of Chicago's Lexington Hotel. Al Capone, far more notorious and legendary than even Dalt Schultz, had used the Lexington as one of his headquarters during the height of his infamy. A construction company discovered a network of secret tunnels while renovating the hotel, and the vault, purported to hold Al Capone's wealth, was uncovered during the restoration. 30 million viewers tuned into the broadcast, wondering just what was inside the secret chamber. Theories ranged from piles of gold coins to the bodies of Capone's malcontents, and Rivera had included both a representative of the United States Treasury and a Chicago coroner on hand to prepare for either possibility. At the climax of the two-hour broadcast, the rusty vault door was finally thrown open, revealing a dusty room with a few old beer bottles and nothing more. Rivera later recalled immediately going to a bar across the street from the Lexington and drowning his embarrassment in tequila. It just goes to show you the effect of the image of an idealized and romantic American gangster on the American consciousness. The reality is a lot more disappointing and violent. We forget that prohibition was not only terribly misguided and repressive, but provided the right conditions for crime to thrive. Racism and anti-immigrant environments bred a desperate wave of men for whom the American dream had failed, their pursuit of a better life in a new country leading them down paths of greed, corruption, and brutality. There are very few heroes to root for during this period of American history, and so it seems fitting that errant safes and empty vaults serve as a lasting legacy. And while Stephanie St. Clair's hands were far from clean, in the end, the Queen of Harlem survived Dutch Schultz and even the height of the mob's tight control on Manhattan. It's possible she may have just seen the signs of the time and knew to get out before it was too late. 
Leaving her numbers rackets in the care of her longtime henchman, Bumpy Johnson, St. Clair went on to use her wealth and her brains to fight for black civil rights and societal reform. She spent 10 years in prison after being accused of shooting a former lover, and when she got out, with her wealth intact, mind you, she went on to become a journalist, penning articles advocating for the rights of the black community. In 1968, her former partner and henchman, Bumpy Johnson, moved in with an aging and ailing Stephanie St. Clair. Old and long retired from the mob, Johnson spent his last days writing poetry by her side until he passed away. St. Clair died not long after, just shy of 73 years old. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. If you like what you've heard and want to put some love into the empty vault of my heart, then you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episodes to my Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and of course, Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder lost treasures that can't fit a full episode. And there's a new one that should be up tonight. Connect with me on Twitter at LostTreasurePod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, throughout history, kings and queens have tried to possess magnificent jewels with bloody pasts. These gemstones carry sinister reputations, with many deaths attributed to their curses. On the next episode of Relic, the missing Florentine diamond and other gemstones that may have been better left unfound. The adventure continues. <laughs>